This is a recording of Onomastic Wordplay on Joseph and Benjamin and Gezerah Shavah in the Book of Mormon by Matthew L. Bowen, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 18, 2016, pages 207 through 225, read by Parker Jackson. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com. Onomastic Wordplay on Joseph and Benjamin and Gezerah Shavah in the Book of Mormon by Matthew L. Bowen Abstract the Book of Mormon contains several quotations from the Hebrew Bible that have been juxtaposed on the basis of shared words or phrases, this for the purpose of interpreting the cited scriptural passages in light of one another. This exegetical technique, one that Jesus himself used, came to be known in later rabbinic times as Gezer Shavah, meaning equal statute. In several additional instances, the use of Gezer Shavah converges with onomastic wordplay, Nephi uses a Gezerah Shavah involving Isaiah 11.11 and Isaiah 29.14 twice on the basis of the Yasap verb forms, Yosip and Yosip, um, in 2 Nephi 25.17 and quoting the Lord in 2 Nephi 29.1 to create a stunning wordplay on the name Joseph. In another instance, King Benjamin uses Gezerah Shavah involving Psalm 2.7 2 Samuel 7.14, and Deuteronomy 14.1, on the basis of the Hebrew noun ben, meaning son, or plural banim, or banot, meaning sons or daughters, on which to build a rhetorical wordplay on his own name. This second wordplay, which further alludes to Psalm 110.1, on account of the noun yamen, meaning right hand, was ready-made for his temple audience who, on the occasion of Mosiah's coronation, were receiving their own endowment to become sons and daughters at God's right hand. The use of Gezerah Shavah was often Christological. Um, for example, Jacob's Gezerah Shavah on stone in Jacob 4, verses 15 through 17, and Alma's Gezerah Shavah on Zenos' and Zenoch's phrase, because of thy son, in Alma 33, verses 11 through 16. Taken together, these examples suggest that we should pay more attention to Scripture's use of Scripture and, in particular, the use of this exegetical practice. In doing so, we will better discern the messages intended by ancient prophets whose words the Book of Mormon preserves. The names of Rachel's two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, constituted two of the most important proper names in ancient Israel. Joseph, as the patriarchal ancestor of the dominant northern half-tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, and Benjamin as the ancestor of the tribe of King Saul, and thus of the first royal tribe in Israel. Joseph and Benjamin also became important names in their own right in the Book of Mormon. Lehi names his youngest son after his ancestor, Joseph the Patriarch. King Mosiah the I names his heir Benjamin, who, according to the textual evidence, emerged as one of the most righteous and influential of the Nephite kings. As I hope to show in this essay, these two names are to be appreciated within the Nephite literary onomasticon, not only for the wordplay on their names evident in the Book of Mormon text, but also for the distinctive exegetical way in which we see that wordplay evident. The wordplay on the name Joseph, meaning may he or may God add, and Benjamin, meaning son of the right hand, often understood to mean son of the directional right hand,
uh, or son of the right hand of power, takes the form of Gezer Shavah, juxtaposing significant texts, prophetic and lit uh, liturgical, from the Hebrew Bible. In addition to these, I will offer additional examples of Gezer Shavah that eliminate, uh, illuminate its importance as an exegetical technique used by ancient prophet writers whose words and messages the Book of Mormon preserves. The Etymologies of Joseph and Benjamin the text of Genesis provides a double etiology for the name Joseph. The narrative reports that Rachel, the mother of the patriarch Joseph, explains the giving of this name to her son thus, And God remembered Rachel, and God hearkened to her and opened her womb, and she conceived and bare a son, and said, God hath taken away, a sop, or gathered in, my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, or Yosep, and said, The Lord shall add, Yosef, to me another son, Ben, in Hebrew, uh, from Genesis 30, uh, verses 22 through 24. The first etiology, the importance of which will be treated in depth elsewhere, is based on the um, phonological similarity of Joseph to the Semitic or Hebrew verb asap, uh, gather or assemble, to bring in or to withdraw. Um, or also to take away. The second etiology, which explains Joseph in terms of the verb yasap, meaning to add, continue to do, carry on doing, or proceed to do something, to do again, or to do something yet more, conforms more strictly to what some would call scientific etymology, since this is the verb from which Joseph derives, historically speaking. Moshe Garciel writes, These Homiletic interpretations express two separate emotions, the immense relief experienced by the hitherto barren Rachel when she bears her first child, and her hope of another child to come. In addition to the juxtaposition of the name Joseph, Yosep, with Yosep, both apparently formed from the third-person masculine singular Joseph conjugation of the hiffel stem of Yasap, or uh, Hosip, the narrator's inclusion of the term Ben anticipates and foreshadows the birth and naming of Benjamin. Of course, the Lord did add another son to Rachel, where the text provides almost all the birth reports and ideological explanations for the names of Jacob's sons, as in Genesis uh, 29, verses, uh, verse 31 and 30, uh, verse 24, the narrative withholds Benjamin's birth and naming until Genesis chapter 35, verses 17 and 18. And it came to pass when Rachel was in hard labor that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son, or Ben, also. And it came to pass as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. The name Benjamin is usually taken to mean son of the right hand in son of the directional right, or son of the south as one faces east. The medieval rabbinic interpreter and commentator Rashi and the author of the putative medieval book of Jasher understand the name Benjamin in this sense. However, there is evidence that the lexical element yamin, meaning right hand, was also understood in terms of right hand of power. For example, 
Judges chapter 3, verses 15 through 21, and chapter 20, verse 16, and 1 Chronicles 12, verse 2, play on the idea of Benjaminites, or sons of Benjamin, as iter yad uh, yamino, or bound as to the right hand of power. In other words, they were trained to be left-handed by having their right hands of power bound. Benjamin connoted son of the right hand of power, or son, uh, in position of divine favor. The word play on Benjamin, then, in Genesis uh, chapter 35, verses 17 and 18, is twofold. There is the very straightforward polyptaton on Ben, meaning son, and Ben in Ben-Ani, and Bin in Binyamin. More importantly, there is also this uh, synonymic and antonymic ambiguity between Oni and Yamin, rather than the typical transparent etiological pun. The meaning of the first given name Ben-Ani is ambiguous, and perhaps intentionally so. It can be understood as meaning both son of my vigor and son of my sorrow. As Robert Alter observes, however, Given the freedom with which biblical characters play with names and their meanings, there is no reason to exclude the possibility that Rachel is invoking both meanings, though the former is more likely. In her death agony, uh, she uh, envisages the uh, continuation uh, of vigor after her in the son she has borne. The tribe of Benjamin, he further notes, will become famous for its marital or, excuse me, martial prowess. Thus, Ben-Ani, or son of my vigor, and Benjamin, meaning son of the right hand, uh, meaning the right hand of power, could be understood as nearly synonymous, but also uh, uh, antonymous, son of my sorrow versus son of the right hand. In either case, the narrator implies that the name Benjamin is to be understood in this birth narrative as a positive name in the sense of son of the right hand of power or strength. It is interesting here, however, to consider Lehi's statement to his son Joseph in the context of the Benjamin ideology. And now I speak unto you, Joseph, my last born. Thou wast born in the wilderness uh, of mine afflictions. Yea, in the days of my greatest sorrow did thy mother bear thee, or Ben-Ani from 2 Nephi 3, verse 1. Rachel bestowed the name Joseph upon her firstborn with the hope of adding another son, uh, from Genesis 30, verse 24. Perhaps Lehi and Sariah bestowed this name upon their son Joseph, at least in part, with similar hopes. Instead, he was their lastborn, and he was their Ben-Ani, in the sense of son of my sorrow, in the days of their greatest sorrow. Gezerah Shavah. The joining together of biblical texts from isolated passages on the basis of shared terminology and interpreting them in light of each other constituted an exegetical technique that came to be known in later rabbinic times as Gezerah Shavah, meaning equal statute, although the practice is older. Jesus employs one of the clearest examples of Gezerah Shavah as recorded in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40 when he combines what he calls the first commandment, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, um, quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, with the second lesser quoted commandment, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, from Leviticus 19, uh, verse 18. 
declaring that on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus' Gezer Shavah makes one commandment of two. Mark and Matthew both record that Jesus used Gezer Shavah in an earlier exchange with some of the Pharisees in criticizing the practice of Corban. For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. Uh, Matthew 15.4, and see also Mark 7.10. Jesus joins the apodictic commandment, Honor thy father and thy mother, as found in Exodus 20.12 and Deuteronomy 5.16, to the causistic penalty for cursing one's parents. He that curseth his father or his mother shall surely be put to death found in Exodus 21, verse 17, and Leviticus 20, verse 9. On the basis of the words father and mother, and perhaps secondarily on the antonomy of honor and curse, he does so to emphasize the fact that through the tradition of Corban, which is declaring the service that might be rendered to parents to be a temple gift, the Pharisees were both failing to honor their parents, a sin of omission, and actively cursing their parents, a sin of commission. Other such examples might be cited. Gezer Shavah existed well before rabbinic times. The evidence of the Book of Mormon suggested it existed even before the time of the exile. Hillel the Elder is sometimes wrongly said to be the originator of Gezer Shavah. Strack and Stemberger note that Gezer Shavah was not invented by Hillel, but instead constituted one of the main types of argument in use at that time. Jesus was employing a technique used before his own time and before Hillel the elders. Nephi's Joseph Gezer Shavaz To explain the eventual fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah, prophecies in which his soul delighted, Nephi combines wordplay on the name Joseph and Gezer Shavah in at least two instances. Nephi juxtaposes the prophecies of Isaiah 11.11 11 and Isaiah 29.14 to foretell the gathering and restoration of Israel at the time of the coming forth of additional scripture, the sealed book of Isaiah 29. I have proposed elsewhere that the unifying principle upon which Nephi bases his exegetical juxtapositions of these two prophecies and his interpreting them in light of one another is their shared use of the Hebrew verb yasap, the most basic sense of which is to add. Yasap also has the more developed senses to continue or proceed to do something and to do again. This verb is also the source of the name Joseph, which means may he or may the Lord add, he shall add or he has added. Thus, when Nephi conjoined these two prophecies on the basis of a common use of Yasap, he was also forming a word play on the name Joseph, both to remind us that it was the seed of Joseph, in addition to the seed of Judah and the other tribes, that would be gathered and to foretell the involvement of another Joseph, the prophet Joseph Smith, in the gathering in the latter days and in the coming forth of additional scripture. Isaiah 11.11 states, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again, Yosip, the second time to recover the remnant of his people, while Isaiah 29.14 declares, Therefore, Behold, I will proceed, Yosip, to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. Nephi's joining of these two passages is most noticeable in Second Nephi 25.17, where he foretells the latter-day gathering of Judah. 
and the Lord will set his hand again, Yosip, the second time, to restore his people from their lost and fallen state. Wherefore he will proceed, Yosip, to do a marvelous work and a wonder among the children of men. Here Nephi states that the Lord shall bring forth his words unto his people, words they have not previously had, for the purpose of convincing them of the true Messiah, and that the promise may be fulfilled unto Joseph, or Joseph. Recalling Lehi's prophecy earlier in the same book of Second Nephi regarding the promise made to Joseph regarding the raising up of a choice seer, helps us to see the connection Nephi makes between the Lord setting his hand again, Yosip, and proceeding, Yosip, to do a marvelous work and the name Joseph, Yosip, uh, both Joseph of old and his descendant Joseph Smith. In Second Nephi 3, Lehi quotes prophecies made by the patriarch Joseph in Egypt to his youngest son Joseph, in which the patriarch foretells that a Joseph would bring about the latter-day gathering and restoration of Israel. This Joseph would be raised up in that day when my work shall commence among all my people unto the restoring the O house of Israel. Second Nephi 3.13 Joseph said he was sure of the fulfilling of this promise, the promise that Nephi said would be fulfilled unto Joseph, or Yosef, when the Lord would set his hand again, Yosip, the second time, and proceed, Yosip, to do a marvelous work and a wonder. Toward the end of his personal writings, Nephi prefaces another prophecy on the coming forth of additional scripture with a revelation from the Lord that juxtaposes the same two Isaiah passages but reverses the order of their quotation. But behold, there shall be many at that day when I shall proceed, Yosip, to do a marvelous work among them, that I may remember my covenants which I have made unto the children of men, that I may set my hand again, we Osip Yadi, the second time to recover my people, which are of the house of Israel. Hence, on two separate occasions, we see Gezer Shavah applied as an exegetical technique in order to make one prophecy from two separate prophecies of Isaiah 11.11 11 and 29.14. For Nephi, as for the Lord himself, the coming forth of the sealed book from Isaiah 29 and the restoration that would follow meant the gathering of Israel. It should be noted here that Nephi explains in 1 Nephi 22 additional prophecies of Isaiah to his brothers in terms of the verb Yasap from Isaiah 29.14. He begins thereby citing Isaiah 29.14. And after our seed is scattered, the Lord God will proceed, Yosip, to do a marvelous work among the Gentiles. Uh, in 1 Nephi 22, verse 8. To this he adds, Wherefore the Lord God will proceed, Yosip, to make bare his arm in the eyes of all nations. That's from second, or excuse me, from First Nephi, twenty-two, verse eleven. Wherefore he will bring them again, Yosip, out of captivity, and they shall be gathered together, why, Yeasipu, to the lands of their inheritance, from First Nephi, twenty-two, verse twelve. Nephi's joining Isaiah fifty-two, ten to Isaiah twenty-nine, fourteen is particularly noteworthy here because he has apparently supplied the verb yasap to Isaiah 52.10, where Isaiah did not previously use that verb. Nephi thus uses the verb form yosip 
to draw an equivalence between the Lord's doing a marvelous work and a wonder among the Gentiles and his making bare his arm in the eyes of the nations. In fact, Nephi saw the Lord's adding to do a marvelous work as an apt summation of Isaiah's prophecies regarding the gathering and restoration of Israel, including and perhaps especially his brothers and his own posterity as descendants of Joseph. Mormon, drawing on the words of Lehi, Nephi, and Isaiah, creates his own clear play on Joseph in this vein. Yea, and surely shall he again, Hebrew Yosip, bring a remnant of the seed of Joseph, Joseph, to the knowledge of the Lord their God, Third uh, Nephi 5.23. 5.24 continues, And as surely the Lord liveth, will he gather in, weigh us up, meaning assemble, from the four quarters of the earth, all the remnant of the seed of Jacob, who are scattered abroad upon all the face of the earth. If the underlying verb is asap, or yeasep, rather than kibetz, or yekibetz, the name play on Joseph is even richer. Either way, Mormon's words unmistakably constitute a citation of Isaiah 11, verses 11 through 12. For Mormon and his Josephite ancestors, the nomen, mean, or name, Joseph, was truly the omen of the Lord's, proceeding to do a marvelous work, which was to set his hand again to gather Israel, a sure sign of additional good things in the latter days. Benjamin's Gezer Shavah involving his own name. As the name of Israel's first royal tribe, as the tribe of King Saul, the name Benjamin, meaning son of the right hand, understanding Yamin as right hand, uh, as the place of divine favor, rather than simply south, also seems appropriate as a Nephite royal name. King Benjamin in the final climactic movement of his majestic sermon to the Nephites and Mulekites of the Temple in Zarahemla, cites several important texts in a remarkable wordplay on his own name. Like Nephi's wordplays on Joseph in 2 Nephi 25.17 and 29 verse 1, King Benjamin's rhetorical wordplay on his own name employs Gezer Shavah. And now these are the words which King Benjamin, Binyamin, desired of them. And therefore he said unto them, Ye have spoken the words that I desired, and now, because of the covenant which ye have made, ye shall be called the children, Hebrew, Benay, of Christ, his sons, Banao, and his daughters, Ubenotel. For behold, this day he hath spiritually begotten you, therefore ye are born of him and have become, become his sons, Banao, and his daughters, Ubenotel. And under this head ye are made free. And there is no other head whereby ye can be made free. There is no other name given whereby salvation cometh. Therefore I would that ye should take upon you the name of Christ, all you that have entered into the covenant with God, that ye should be obedient unto the end of your lives. And it shall come to pass that whosoever doeth this shall be found at the right hand, Yamin, of God. For he shall know the name by which he is called. For behold, he shall be called by the name of Christ. Mosiah 5, verses 6 through 9. King Benjamin's declaration to his people that they would be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters, for behold, this day he has spiritually begotten you, 
constitutes an unmistakable citation of the royal rebirth formula, sometimes called an adoption formula, of Psalm 2, verse 7. Thou art my son, beni ata, this day have I begotten thee. Earlier in the same psalm, the royal or Davidic addressee is called the Lord's anointed, Messiho, uh, or his Messiah or Christ, um, from Psalm verse, uh, 2, verse 2. The newly enthroned Judahite king thus took upon himself the name title anointed, Messiah. In other words, he took upon himself the name of Christ, which Latter-day Saints covenant their willingness to do at baptism, and re-covenant their willingness to do in partaking of the sacrament. King Benjamin likened this psalm to his audience at the Temple in Zarahemla, so they too might take upon themselves or bear this name. When Benjamin subsequently stated, And ye have become his sons and his daughters, uh, he was invoking the covenant rebirth language of Second Samuel 7.14, where the Lord makes a covenant regarding David's son Solomon. I will be, or become, Aya, his father, and he shall be my, meaning be, become to me a, uh, Hebrew, Yiye Li, son, Leben, literally, for a son. A democratized form of the same formula to which Benjamin also seems to allude occurs in Deuteronomy 14, verses 1 and 2. Ye are children, banim, of the Lord. Thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be, lihayot, meaning become, a peculiar people, am segula, unto himself, lo, meaning his, above all the nations that are upon the earth. We recall that King Benjamin had explained to his son Mosiah the purpose of his speech beforehand as follows, I shall give this people a name, that thereby they may be distinguished above all the people which the Lord God hath brought out of the land of Jerusalem. And this I do because they have been a diligent people in keeping the commandments of the Lord. Uh, from Mosiah 1, verse 11. King Benjamin's citation of Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2 in Mosiah 1, 11 suggests his deliberate use of it in Mosiah 5, verse 7. The distinguishing name is the foundation for the sealing King Benjamin uh, promises his people in Mosiah 5, 15. The key terms that Benjamin cites from Psalm 2, 7, 2 Samuel 7, 14, and Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2 are son, Hebrew ben, or children, banim. The latter term includes both sons and daughters. Compare how Paul expands the royal covenant formula of 2 Samuel 7, 14 in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 18. And the verb hayah, a verb that, as Graham S. Ogden has noted, indicates transition from one sphere of existence to another, and with the formulaic preposition lay, conveys the idea of becoming. More recently, Seakte Son has argued that Haya used in the covenant rebirth or adoption context is both connecting and transitional in describing the concept of covenant. This is what John later describes as Christ giving power, or exousia, meaning authority, to become the sons of God, technotheu, meaning children of God uh, in Greek, rendering Hebrew uh, bene Elohim, 
even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. From John 1, verses 12 and 13. Benjamin's use of the covenant rebirth language in his speech is most striking because it merges the royal and democratized forms uh, in a royal context. In other words, he makes his own son's divine rebirth, coronation, and enthronement the occasion of the conditional divine rebirth and coronation, and enthronement of his people, predicated on their retaining the name written always in their hearts. It constituted something of a temple endowment. They were all becoming sons and daughters who were ascending to the true throne, the throne of the divine son, the throne of grace, of which the mercy seat, kaporet, um, or atonement covering piece, was a type. To his Gezer Shabbat of Psalm 2.7 and 2 Samuel 7.14 and Deuteronomy 14.1 and 2, King Benjamin then adds another promise. Whosoever doeth this shall be found at the right hand, Yamin, of God, uh, in Mosiah 5 verse 9. The phrase, at the right hand of God, in the Hebrew Bible, occurs in Psalm 16.11 and 110 verse 1 as a reference to to the place of divine favor. The coronation or enthronement context of King Benjamin's speech suggests that he is specifically alluding to Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, Limini, or Le and Yamini, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. One way of interpreting this verse is that the Israelite king sat, or was enthroned, at Yahweh's right hand. However, a first-century Jewish and a Latter-day Saint interpretation of this verse would read it thus, Jehovah said to David's Lord, the Messiah, Sit thou at my right hand, Limini, or Le and Yamini, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Within either interpretive scenario, Psalm 110, verse 1 is describing a divine enthronement following a divine birth or rebirth like the divine birth described in Psalm 2, verse 7. Divine birth is also mentioned in Psalm 110, verse 3, further suggesting that King Benjamin had um, the 110th Psalm in mind. Benjamin joined Psalm 110.1 to his previous Gezer Shavah on Psalm 2.7, Deuteronomy 14.1 and 2, and Samuel uh, 7.14 not on the basis of the first element, um, Ben meaning son, but instead on the second element in his name, Yamin, meaning right hand, in a clever wordplay. The royal covenant entailed not merely becoming a son or daughter of God, but also enthronement at the right hand of God, becoming a Benjamin. Thus, the philological elements of King Benjamin's name apparently guided a selection and ordering of the royal and covenant texts quoted. Although a covenant speech might be expected to contain covenant filiation language similar to Deuteronomy 14 verses 1 and 2, and a coronation ceremony might be expected to allude to texts like Psalm 2, 7, 2 Samuel 7, 14, and even Psalm 110, it is the application of royal coronation and enthronement texts to his temple audience, texts that grant the possibility, 
contingent upon individual faithfulness, that they might all become kings and queens, sons and daughters at the right hand, that makes Benjamin's speech revolutionary. From an ancient Israelite perspective, Benjamin was already a royal son, or Ben, who was already at the right hand of God, just as Mosiah was becoming a son at the right hand, a Benjamin through his coronation on that very day. Benjamin instead de-emphasizes this idea, teaching the people about the truly royal and divine Son, Jesus Christ, and how this Son's atonement made it possible for all of them, through covenant obedience, to become the Son's sons and daughters, uh, and to be enthroned with the Son of God at the Father's right hand. Benjamin's people did not likely miss the point of King Benjamin's jarring explanation or application of these royal texts to them or the unifying principle behind the text's quotation, sons and daughters and the allusion to God's right hand, the elements of their king's name. Reflecting on the themes of Mosiah 1 through 6, as we, we as Mormons uh, implied literary audience, can also appreciate them. The occasion for Benjamin's speech was his own son's enthronement, as Benjamin himself declares. The Lord God hath commanded me that I should declare unto you this day that my son Mosiah is a king and a ruler over you. From Mosiah 2, verse 30. However, from the outset, King Benjamin had made an unprecedented effort to put himself on equal grounds with his people, as stipulated by Deuteronomy 17, verse 20. By democratizing the language of the royal covenant and enthronement text on the occasion of his own son's adoption or rebirth and enthronement, including the juxtaposition of texts, the key covenant terms, son and right hand, which constitute the elements of his own name, King Benjamin taught his temple audience, his Nephite and Melekite subjects, a masterful typological lesson on the necessity of their own rebirth into Christ's heavenly family, so they might receive as heirs with him every blessing in the covenant of the Father. After all, they were not just receiving the name of their king Benjamin, but were taking upon them as royal sons and daughters the name title of the true son of the right hand, or Christ. In so doing, they all were becoming Benjamins, sons and daughters of the right hand, Mosiahs, meaning saviors, and Messiahs or Christs, meaning anointed ones. Because of thy son, Gezereshavaz of Zenos, Zenoch, Isaiah, and Psalms. Son is the terminological basis of another Gezereshavah by Alma the Younger. Two of the dominant issues that confronted Alma during the Zoramite apostasy was their rejection of a Messiah or Christ and their failure to pray and worship apart from weekly rote prayers given atop the Ramiumtum. In teaching the Zoramites a better praxis of prayer, Alma uses Gezer Shovah when he draws together two now otherwise unattested passages of Scripture from the brass plates, the prayer of Zenos and a statement from Zenoch. The lexical basis for the juxtaposition of these two passages of Scripture are forms of the word mercy or merciful and the phrase, because of thy son. And thou didst hear me because of mine afflictions and my sincerity, and it is because of thy son that thou hast been thus merciful unto me. Therefore I will cry unto thee in all mine afflictions, for in thee is my joy. For thou hast turned thy judgments away from me because of thy son. Alma 33.11 Alma here emphasizes the phrase because of thy son as key to his whole argument. And now Alma said unto them, Do ye believe those scriptures which have been written by them of old? 
Behold, if ye do, ye must believe what Zenos said. For behold, he said, Thou hast turned away thy judgments because of thy son. Alma 33.12 He again appeals to the authority of Zenos's words, which some Zoramites still must have accepted as scripture. Now behold, my brethren, I would ask if ye have read the scriptures. If ye have, how can ye disbelieve on the Son of God? Then he invokes Zenoch, or Zenoch, as his second witness. For it is not written that Zenos alone spake of these things, but Zenoch also spake of these things. For behold, he said, Thou art angry, O Lord, with his people, because they will not understand thy mercies, which thou hast bestowed upon them, because of thy Son. Alma 33, verses 15 to 16. Alma cites Zenoch, or Zenoch, precisely because the latter's use of the expression because of thy son matches Zenos's use of the same phrase in his prayer. Their shared use of merciful mercy and mercies provides a further lexical basis for Alma's exegesis. Alma concludes that the law of witnesses has been met. And now, my brethren, ye see that a second prophet of old has testified of the Son of God, and because the people would not understand his words, they stoned him to death. Alma 33.17 Zenoch had, moreover, sealed his testimony with his own blood. For good measure, Alma was, will also appeal to Moses' testimony in the form of the brazen serpent as a typological third witness. Jacob's use of Gezer Shavah as an interpretive lens for Zenos's allegory. Significantly, this is not the first time that the words of Zenos are associated with the use of Gezer Shavah. In creating an introduction for and a lens through which to interpret his full-length quotation of Zenos's allegory of the olive trees in Jacob 5, Jacob creates a Gezer Shavah which joins together portions of two prophecies of Isaiah in Isaiah 8.14 and chapter 28, verse 16, together with Psalm 118, verse 22, based on shared words like Eben, Hebrew for stone, a homonym of Ben, to create a single prophecy about Jesus Christ. When we also consider Jacob's mention of Abraham's offering of his son, Isaac, in the wilderness, uh, or, excuse me, in the likeness of God, and his only begotten son, which, as I have suggested elsewhere, is the etiological foundation of the ancient Israelite temple. And in the threefold repetition of the verb build, Hebrew bana, juxtaposed with this Gezer Shavah, we can see Jacob unfolding an elaborate wordplay on Jacob's wordplay emphasizes, excuse me, Jacob's wordplay emphasizes Christ as the royal son and stone, eben, or cornerstone, on which a dynasty emblemized by a temple made of stones, Israel's sons and daughters, is built. Zenos' allegory is an extended parable of how fallen men and women are made divine sons and daughters. The natural fruit, or posterity made good, even like as it was in the beginning, through the atonement of the Son, Jesus Christ. Finally, it should be noted that Jacob deploys Gezer Shavah again at the conclusion of Zenos' allegory, juxtaposing Isaiah 11.11 and a passage that he has just quoted from Zenos. Uh, in Jacob 5, verses 61 to 71. And the day that he shall set his hand again, Hebrew Yosip, 
the second time to recover his people is the day yea even the last time that the servants of the lord shall go forth in his power to nourish and prune his vineyard and after that the end soon cometh this citation begins a string of scriptural citations based on the words day uh, and time possibly both the hebrew term yom isaiah 65 2 and zenith is similar image as, as in Jacob 5.47, cited in Jacob 6.4, Psalm 95.7, and Jane, or Jacob 6, verses 5 and 6. And then Isaiah 65, verse 2, and Jacob 5, verse 47, again in Jacob 6, verse 7. Although the primary lexical basis for the Gezerah Shavah of Isaiah 11.11 11, and Zenos' description of the last time or day is the term day or time. A secondary lexical basis for the Gezer Shavah may be the verb Yasep or Yosip in Latin. In Yosip in I excuse me, in Isaiah eleven eleven and the possible idiomatic use of Yasap, do something again, used repeatedly in Jacob five, sixty two to seventy one three times in verses 63, 67, and 68. And throughout Zenos' allegory, see also Jacob 5, verses 29, 33, 58, 60, and 61, um, four times in those, and three times in verses 73 through 75 and verse 77. If so, Jacob's Gezer Shavah in Jacob 6, verse 2, would also constitute a deliberate wordplay on the name Joseph, like those employed by his brother Nephi. Conclusion and Pragmatics Recognizing Nephi's repeated exegetical juxtaposition of Isaiah 11.11 and 29.14 as Gezerah Shavah, uh, such as in 2 Nephi 25 verse 17 and 29 verse 1, on the basis of the verb Yasap in the forms Yosip and Yosip, helps us to appreciate how, after the manner of the things of the Jews, 2 Nephi 25.5, Two or more disparate prophecies can be seen as fulfilled in a single divine act of restoration, or rather in a single person, a Joseph or Yosef. Similarly, recognizing King Benjamin's wordplay on his own name as a Gezer Shavah in the royal context of his temple sermon helps us appreciate how disparate royal covenants texts like Psalm 2 7, Psalm 110, verses 1 through 3, and 2 Samuel 7 14 can be drawn together on the basis of shared words and onomastic elements. Moreover, it helps us appreciate how these texts can then be reinterpreted and even democratized through the lens of Deuteronomy 14, verses 1 and 2, and likened to a temple audience in order to help that audience as a kind of endowment, prepare to become sons and daughters at God's right hand, or Benjamins. As Jacob, the Nephite high priest and brother of Nephi, recognized, this is precisely what Zenos' allegory of the olive tree is all about. Like Nephi, Jacob, Alma, Mark, Paul, and the Savior himself, we can increase our understanding and appreciation of the words of Isaiah, Zenos, the Psalms, and other scriptures by adding Gezer Shavah to our scripture study repertoire. The, uh, the juxtaposing of different packages excuse me, different passages uh, sharing the same words and phraseology and interpreting them for our profit and learning.
Matthew L. Bowen was raised in Orem, Utah, and graduated from Brigham Young University. He holds a Ph.D. in Biblical Studies from the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and is currently an associate, or excuse me, an assistant professor in religious education at Brigham Young University, Hawaii. He and his wife, the former Suzanne Blattberg, are the parents of three children, Zachariah, Nathan, and Adele. This has been a recording of Onomastic Wordplay on Joseph and Benjamin and Gezerra Shavah in the Book of Mormon by Matthew L. Bowen. Originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 18, 2016, pages 207 through 225. Read by Parker Jackson. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon Scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com.